Welcome everyone to Andy Here's the 80s, the show where we try and find the absolute best albums from the 1980s. Here in season two, we examine the work of a different artist or group each episode. And this week we are taking a listen to the albums of the English rock band XTC. And joining me as always is my co-host Aaron Keck. How are you, Aaron? Good. How are you? Doing well. Uh, You know, I'd always heard the name XTC mentioned, you know, in conversations about 80s alternative and influences and stuff like that. And I had considered him for the alternative episode last uh, season. Uh, But I'm glad that we're kind of taking a listen to the whole kind of 80s discography of theirs. The fact that you had heard of XTC puts you one up on me. I knew about Andy Partridge, specifically mm-hmm. the the singer, songwriter, guitarist. I was not super familiar at all with the band, so I was I was interested in, in really digging into them. Yeah, I had heard of Andy Partridge, but I think before this, if you had asked me, I would have assumed he was part of the Partridge family. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Which he is, which he is not, for the record. I mean, we can't prove it's not true. I mean, he that's might have true. Been I guess we, we haven't seen him in the same room or well, in different yeah, rooms. Yeah, like what was he doing in the seventies? You don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, they uh, did actually form in the seventies. We're going to be listening to just their albums from the eighties uh, this episode, uh, but I wanted to take a little bit to kind of catch up to where we start. Um, the, I did also for this week read another uh, rock biography of the band. This one is called Chalk Hills and Children by Chris Toomey, uh, which covered basically the band up until 1992 when the book was published, which worked out perfectly because that's basically when we were stopping listening to them anyway. Uh, awesome. But yeah, and it's funny. It's pretty good. It's definitely an English author for an English band because he refers to Europe as the continent several times. Uh, <laughs> And then I don't know if it's an English thing or not, but he uses more exclamation points than any book I've probably <laughs> ever read. Does he also use the phrase blimey? Because that's that's an English thing I've heard. <laughs> I, did, I didn't see it. But okay. I'm sure, I'm sure he said it. But it was it did keep throwing me off. I'm sure that every page there's some sentence that ends in an exclamation point. It was really it was really throwing <laughs> me off. Who published this book? Let's see. It was published by Omnibus Press. Okay. Uh, and actually, it was re-released uh, in 2016 with some updates, uh, but I just have the old version that I got from a used bookseller. But There's not enough exclamation points. We need a second edition <laughs> exactly. with more exclamation points. Twice as many exclamation point. And four interrobangs, at least. <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was a fun read, for sure. A lot of energy. Uh, how many? But, how how long did we get into this episode before we shifted into the fake British accents? Three minutes. <laughs> yeah, solid three minutes. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Uh, <laughs> well, if you're still listening, thank you. Uh, but uh, so we take. Let's see. We dive into XTC here. Uh, like I said, we start with their first album. But uh, before that, the band was first formed in Swindon, a town about two hours west of London, with members Andy Partridge on guitar and vocals, Colin Moulding on bass and vocals. Terry Chambers on drums, and at this point, a rotating cast of other Swindoners. Uh, they toyed with different names, different sounds in the early 70s, and stuck for a while as kind of a glam rock outfit uh, called Helium Kids, with a Z, uh, which is a great name. But they, by the end of 1976, uh, Barry Andrews had settled into the regular lineup as their piano and keyboard player, and kind of picked a more new wave-ish sound, uh, kind of in response to the emerging punk scene that everybody was experiencing. And then they changed their name to go along with the sound. 
uh, chosen by Andy based on a line from a Jimmy Durante film from 1947 called This Time for Keeps, where he exclaims, I'm in XTC, which he then abbreviated to XTC for uh, for more, I don't know, I guess a, a better look on the on the cover. But I like the idea of XTC as ecstasy. Like that's really cool. That's a that's a good name for a band and one that kind of fits into the vibe. I don't really associate late seventies British rock and that whole scene with Jimmy Durante per se. But if that's what works for them, uh, go with it. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think that speaks to like Andy Partridge's kind of eccentricities that this yeah. is the reference point he chose to go with. Uh, especially considering I tried for like an hour yesterday to find a clip of that movie where he says it and I have yet to find it. So <laughs> maybe, maybe if you're lucky when you're hearing this, I've found it by then, but my guess Jimmy is... Jimmy Durante just lost to history. Yeah. It supposedly XTC survives, around, but Jimmy Durante is just impossible to find anymore. I know, he's, he's scrubbed his record from history. <laughs> but supposedly it's around a song in there where he finds the lost chord it's called like i've the man who found the lost chord and i listened to about five different versions of that song hoping he would say it in one of them but it must just be in the movie maybe before or after he's he sings the song so basically i've heard that song as many times as i've heard some of these xtc songs <laughs> i don't know that i'm any better for it but nice uh, but it's also around this time when they're starting up that they meet a guy named Ian Reed, who was a club owner in Swindon, who would become their manager. Uh, he was helpful in getting some more gigs in the surrounding towns. And then within a year of them changing their name to XTC, they had landed a deal with Virgin Records. Uh, you know, they'd made a name for themselves in these smaller venues. We're still having some trouble kind of breaking into London itself, uh, where, you know, in the smaller towns, they were the cool kids. But then when you come into London they've seen it all they've heard it all they're not right. impressed uh, but they they did eventually you know refine their live shows they impressed the right people and so virgin quickly got them in the studio where they recorded an ep didn't really get much traction but got them a little bit of airtime and then uh, recorded their full length shortly after that their first one called white music january of 78 which was received decently by critics sold better than their ep they ended up touring around europe and uk uh, all year in 78 uh, while also recording a second one already, Go To, which would release in October of 78. And that one kind of started to move them past the sort of 50s rock, but faster that they had kind of done on their mm. first record. Uh, it, but, is really, it is really interesting how they start out as a live band and really build their reputation on live performance, considering what's going to happen to them in the 80s when they just exclusively yeah. become a, like famously exclusively become a studio band. Uh, it's the live performance that they start to build their reputation on. Yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, you know, they were, they were kind of wearing their influences on their sleeve to start out with. I mean, and they would throughout their whole career, I think, but like, you know, Beatles and Stones and Iggy mm -hmm. Pop were all kind of touchstones for them. And then you know, it's funny, like Beatles comparisons would be even more apt once they then would later become just a studio act. But uh, after after uh, Go To, you know, they toured again, um, made their first trip to America uh, for New Year's Eve, uh, December 31st, 82 into 83. Uh, they opened for the Talking Heads at a show there and then managed to get a couple other shows around the Northeast after that. And once they got home, this was all beginning to be too much uh, for Barry Andrews who decided he had enough left the band 
replaced uh, by another fellow Swindon native uh, named Dave Gregory, who would stick with them for the basically the rest of the run after this. Uh, but they got right back into the studio, released Drums and Wires in August of 79, produced by uh, future U2 producer Steve Lillywhite. And then they would tour Australia for the first time that summer, as well as a short Japanese tour. So they're constantly, if they're not in the studio, they're on the road, basically, at this point. Mm-hmm. And Drums and Wires became their most successful album uh, by this point, selling decently in UK and Europe, touring again in 79. So yeah, they were on the rise at this point. This is the episode where it took us the fastest amount of time to get to the fake British accents. It's also the episode where it's taken us the longest amount of time to get to the actual 80s. Like most of the (laughs) bands that we've covered are really fundamentally 80s bands. Like they might have gotten started in the late 70s, but they're really uh, launching the 80s. This is a band that had a pretty decent history by the time we even get into the decade, right? Yeah, it's true. But I I think at the same time, this is actually the perfect place to jump in because I think it's 1980. They do a two month American tour to start that before diving back into the studio again. And I think uh, at this point, they're three albums in. They've refined what they've refined their musicianship. They've refined their songwriting. And I think at this point, uh, when they're working on their fourth album, Steve Lillywhite's back as a producer. They come out with uh, Black Sea in 1980. And I think this is really their first great album because I listened to the other ones once just to hear them. I think this is really where they find it. Uh, so as an example of that, let's take a listen to their first single from that one, uh, Generals and Majors. That's a great example of just how incredibly catchy and driving like rock songs they made for this album. I don't like this album. I don't <laughs> really? like this album at all. I don't actually get into XTC until way later in the decade. So I'm just going to be like the first whole half of this episode. I'm just going to be uh, sitting here harumphing and garumphing. However, uh, Generals and Majors is a really good song. Like That's going to end up being in my top five. And it is. It's just a, a really super fun, bouncy, driving song. And it's got a point. You can tell that they're uh-huh. also like having fun recording this song. And this is going to be uh, this is going to be a trend with XTC throughout the 80s. Like they never lose the love of going into the studio and saying, ooh, I've got an idea, let's do this. I just heard mm-hmm. this song and it inspired me, let's do that. Uh, a lot of the bands that g- 
come out with albums all the way through the 80s. And I think we talked about this with the replacements. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the time they're getting five or six albums in, you start to feel like they're in a rut and they're going into the studio and they're recording an album because they're contractually obligated to and they don't really have any love for it anymore and they've run out of things to say. You don't get that with XTC. Like, I don't really love everything that this band does, but I love the energy and the love that they bring to it. And that's just as prominent in the later years of the decade as it is in uh as it is in 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 this album yeah i think you know i was thinking about it earlier today and uh, this is true for all of them i think they made music with them in mind first you know what i mean they made the music they wanted to hear for themselves and then if other people enjoyed it great you know but i think that's that's the best way for any artist really to go about it that i've you know, as I've seen from other bands that we've listened to, if you're making it with, if you're making stuff you like, people are going to re- respond to that. You don't, if you're yeah, trying to make yeah. something for somebody to like it, then they're going to see right through it. I feel then like. it's not going to work. Right. Uh, all of that's true. Having said that, I was listening to this album, uh, Black Sea. I listened to Generals and Majors. Great. Like this song. Really excited about getting into the rest of the album. And by the time I was three quarters of the way through this album, I was sitting there listening to it, and I said to myself, you know what I really want to be listening to right now? Madness. I want to be listening to Madness. And also the talking heads. Like, I want to listen to this kind of music, but better. So (laughs) I left, and I went and listened to Madness for a little while, and I went and listened to Talking Heads for a little while, and then I came back and finished the album. But, yeah, other other than generals and majors, like, this totally did not do it for me. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I can see the, definitely hear the talking, even listening to this, I could hear the Talking Heads comparison, and so it was apt that yeah. they played that New Year's show together. Yeah, Madness um, isn't quite the same, like, they're more ska, but still kind of, yeah. sort of, kind of along the same lines, but yeah, much more Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, I don't know, for this one, it had just such great guitar and drum sounds, I thought, uh, there wasn't really a song on this I didn't like. I think they, you know, they experimented a little bit, but it still had a consistent sound throughout, uh, but I don't know. Maybe it was just more. If it has good guitars, then I'm into it. And so this and this one did. <laughs> but this is this was to to date or you know to this point in 1980, each album became more and more successful. So this was their best one to or the best selling, best reviewed to date at this point. Yeah, you know they're starting to throw around Lennon and McCartney comparisons to Partridge and Molding, which is probably uh, premature. But uh, and also. Andy Partridge is kind of the track hog. I mean, Molding usually got two or three on a record right. if, if he was lucky. But so maybe more, but the he's Lennon more of a Harrison, maybe. But the Lennon and McCartney comparisons might be premature, but they're definitely anticipatory because this is going to be a real Sgt. Peppery sounding band in a few albums. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, but right after, while Black Sea releases, they uh, tour Europe with the police. Um, and then they open for the cars in Madison Square Garden. Uh, Mm -hmm. in december so they're getting bigger and bigger gigs and becoming to be even more noticed Uh, they return to north america to tour again in the spring uh, including a date in athens georgia where a band of young upstarts who also had a three-letter band name opened for them Uh, they play a couple shows in venezuela that literally end in riots because of militant police presence which they were not happy about but uh, so that's that was kind of their touring right after that, which of course led them right back into the studio uh, to record their next one. Uh, and this one, so for 
uh, Black Sea, they kind of concentrated on songs that they would then be playing live. So, I mean, they were arrangements that were, would translate directly to the stage. Whatever you hear on the album, you're going to hear at the show. They wrote songs for the next one kind of with le- that less in mind, and, but they were so inspired by what they had done and seen so far that they had a ton of songs going into it enough to create uh, a double album which would come out in February of 82 called English Settlement. Uh, let's hear a little bit of the first single from it. This is Senses Working Overtime. This is actually the first song listening to it that I recognized. I was like, oh, I've heard this song before. Again, you're one up on me. Like I had, <laughs> we're, I mean, we'll get to some of their more popular stuff later. Like Dear God is going to be their, their more pop, their most popular song. I think from an American perspective, I hadn't heard mm-hmm. that one. Like I had heard none of this. So this was all completely brand new to me. I don't know when I, I, I guess probably just on the radio or something, but I definitely recognized the song and was like, oh, that's fun. I like that song. And I do. I think that's a good song. I think this this being a double album, the, the thing about double albums is true, where you could probably trim it down to one and it'd be better for it. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think side three in particular, if you have the the records, is pretty much a full skip for me. It starts with uh, Melt the Guns, which I appreciate the sentiment, but I think that's a terrible song. <laughs> Uh, I appreciate the sentiment, but is like the worst <laughs> beginning for a song review ever. I'm like, I see where you're going with this. I like, I agree with your, uh, your, in, your opinions interest me and I want to subscribe to your newsletter, but just, just shut yeah. up. I mean, they have plenty of great like anti-war and anti-violence songs, including the ones on the last album before this, but mm-hmm. you know, I don't think that, I think they can do better and have done better. Uh, and then, uh, but uh, I think the first like run tracks one through seven that whole first disc if it's a, if it's a vinyl is great i like um since working overtime is fun i think that uh the closer of that first disc i like a lot which is all of a sudden it's too late i think that's a great song and i think it still ends strong i think after those ones that i would skip uh, down in the cockpit english roundabout th- those are fun songs i think yeah, Down in the Cockpit, I think, is definitely my favorite off of this album, uh, which, again, is an album that just 
did not speak to me. I didn't like it. I don't need to hear it again. But there's a couple of songs <laughs> off of it. And and by the way, if there's a if there's an album that you don't really love, it doesn't really speak to you. You don't need to hear it again. And then you discover it's a double album. Oh man, that's that's extra fun. But uh, down in the cockpit is a is a good song. And again, it's the it's that sense of fun experimentation that's in this album that's going to be in all of the other albums uh, by people who are really good musicians and songwriters and performers so Mm -hmm. like this is a high quality album uh again this is a this is a very well-made album is probably not the best compliment that you want to be receiving if you're a (laughs) musician like you did a good job Mm -hmm. uh you definitely know how to play your instruments but uh but that's that's what I come away with on yeah. this one. It's like if you see a friend's play and you're like, oh, the lighting was great. <laughs> Your paper, you know, the, the margins are just consistent all the way through from start <laughs> yeah. to finish. How did you do that? Tons oh, of I love that say. choice. <laughs> so modern. I just use Times Regular Roman. <laughs> yeah. But I think this is I think this one is is good. I actually probably still prefer Black Sea a little bit more because I think it's a little bit more of a rock album. But uh, but yeah, this is a well produced album. There's good songs on here, but I think it is still yet to be their best work, right? Yeah, for sure. But it still helped uh, continue to grow their fan base and grow their uh, critical acclaim as well. This this just after the next one became their next best selling album, best reviewed. Um, and inevitably sent them right on another tour, which then at this point becomes the breaking point. Uh, the, the tour album tour cycle had been wearing too hard on the band, especially uh, Partridge, who would start getting violent panic attacks before and even during shows uh, to the point where uh, in support of English Settlement now, they uh, that spring in Paris, they were doing a show where you got 30 seconds into a first song and then just ran off stage throwing up. They tried to soldier on for a few more dates, but then they ended up in Los Angeles where he just went straight to the hospital and got a note to give to his tour manager saying, I can't perform anymore. And yeah. Right from then, that would be the, the last time they ever traveled really for a, for a tour. I mean, you said that the, the the touring was wearing on the band, especially Partridge. I mean, specifically Partridge, right? Like, cause the rest of the band members, for the entire rest of the decade, actively wanted to go back on tour, and they just couldn't yeah. do it because Partridge wasn't in a place where he could. That's true. They, yeah, they, you know, they were certainly worn out, but they were were more than willing to continue to tour, and in fact, wanted to a lot of times. But yeah, yeah it was, so it was very much Andy Partridge's decision to make them a studio band. But uh, it's totally fine because if you're going to spend the rest of the decade being uh, either accused of or lauded for being derivative of the Beatles, you might as well go all the way and stop touring at the absolute height of your popularity and then get even more popular later on. So yeah, it's perfect. Exactly. It only makes sense. Yeah. It really, they were paying tribute you know in real time yeah of course yeah uh but so they're you know they settle back into swindon you know they become a studio band they start writing for a new album uh they renegotiate with virgin for a new deal uh at this point english settlement was there uh they were were working on their six so this would have been the new uh a new deal for them because they had just signed a six album deal when they joined with virgin uh but at this point i'll mention they we're not bringing in very much money for the amount of popularity they were growing and the amount of dates they were playing 
and albums they were selling, they were not seeing the revenue that they hoped they were. Uh, yeah. And Can we start booing Ian Reed at this point? Or yeah. Is that at not this for point, a okay, good. Yeah. His <laughs> lack of experience as a manager, Virgin kind of took advantage of that. And between the two of them were basically not yielding any revenue for the band essentially. Uh, but so, so yeah, this is kind of the beginning of the end for Ian Reed. Uh, mm-hmm. He would he would eventually be their down the downfall monetarily for the band, but Virgin certainly uh, took their fair share as well. Uh, and then of course canceling you know two legs of a tour after that for books or you know shows you've already booked that didn't help anything uh, either. That's going to cost you, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but so from what I can tell after their contract negotiation, they're getting around 600 pounds a month from Virgin. And that's basically it. That's about all wow. the revenue they're getting as a band. But, uh, you know, Andy basically decided for all of them that they weren't going to tour again. So they trudged along, went into the new album. Uh, and this is a point they're working on their next album. And Terry Chambers decides he's had enough. Uh, you know, he quits the band basically right there in the studio, having recorded just three tracks so far for the new album. He sells his house, moves to Australia with a woman he met on tour when they were there last uh, named Donna Blanchard. He marries her within a year and then they don't see him again for a decade, basically. <laughs> he left hmm. in the middle of the sessions and became an Australian citizen. Good for him. Yeah, exactly. So they continue on as a three-piece. They bring in a drummer named Pete Phipps to drum on the remaining tracks and would never again hire an official new drummer for the band. So officially, this, the, from this point on, XTC is a three-piece. Uh, so August of 83 then sees the release of Mummer, their first album as a purely studio entity. Uh, I want to play a little bit of the second track and their second single. Uh, this is Wonderland. is a good example of how certain sounds can kind of come back into style almost because i think if you put more reverb on this song it's a beach house track yeah and i like this song a lot this might be my favorite on the album uh i'm okay with that um 
Yeah, you, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be knocking this band until Skylarking. So it's it's all <laughs> wow. good. Uh, yeah, didn't like this one either. Won't like the next one. Skylarking. I'll have a lot of good stuff to say, but not not until then. Uh, I will say the two tracks that bookend Wonderland, uh, Beating of Hearts and Love on a Farm Boy's Wages, which mm-hmm. is uh, one of the other singles, right? Yeah. Uh, those those are the two that stand out for me. And Love on a Farm Boy's Wages, I think, especially. Um, just because it's it's such a different vibe from so much of their other output at this mm-hmm. point, and again, it's not just that they're good musicians having fun and and experimenting and trying new things, but they've also got significant things to say. And this is a band that's living in Swindon and Thatcher's Britain, making six hundred pounds a month, and they're writing about that, and yeah. uh, they're writing like really significant, heavy stuff about it. But they're also having fun doing it. Yeah, definitely. I I liked the experimentation that they did on this album. And I think that first, you know, the first three and even Great Fire too, I think that that's a strong start to the album. I think the the only song really, Human Alchemy, I could take or leave, but I think the rest of the album is pretty good. I like uh, In Loving Memory of a Name too. That's one of my favorites. That one's not, yeah, that one's actually not bad. Of the, of the, the songs on side two, that one for mm-hmm. sure. I will say that I, I feel uh, okay. I feel good about myself uh, going through this <laughs> band because I'm listening through the music and then I'm looking them up online and learning about the band as I'm listening to the music. And the first couple of albums, I think, okay, this is kind of making me think of bands like Madness and Talking Heads. And then I look up the band and at this time they're touring with Talking Heads. They're producing or they're recording with producers that also worked with Madness. At this point, when we get to Mummer uh, and the Big Express, I start thinking that they're starting to sound more and more like a funhouse mirror version of mid to late Beatles. And then I'm looking them up and, oh, it's at this point that people start to... Uh, identify them as a as a Beatles derivative. I'm like, okay, I'm 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 picking up what they're putting down. I'm okay with this. <laughs> yeah, you can definitely you know r- trace the yarn around the the you know the pegboard or whatever. You know, you can see the things connecting at this point. Yeah, uh, but uh, this one did. This was their first one to kind of dip from the previous one, right? I mean, it didn't sell as well as uh, English Settlement. It didn't review as well. And since they weren't going to tour on it, Virgin didn't really feel any need to promote it that much either. So they just go right back in, start writing more songs for the next one. Uh, all And this is really when lawsuits for Reed start coming back and forth too. So mm-hmm. they're, they're starting to litigate all that happened with him. So they're sitting there in Swindon, like you said, and, th- and they take their inspiration for the next al- album from the surrounding railroads, make kind of a more industrial train-themed album which is questionable. And then that results in the big express, <laughs> which is October of 84. So you know more about this than, than I do. What are they doing at this point to make ends meet? We were talking about the replacements before where some of the band members started working in retail and working, was it fast mm-hmm. food or something like that in order to, in order to get by, did this band ever get to that point or were they able to make it on the, the bit of money that they were making for being XTC? Uh, they did. You know, I, I remember actually seeing something in the book about, um, Dave and Colin. Uh, I don't know if they were working as movers as well or something, but there was definitely some kind of just okay. basic labor job that they also took up. And then they would also start doing, um, you know, just side jobs as session musicians and uh, producers for smaller acts and stuff like that. So okay. they're trying to maintain, you know, musical 
uh, interest throughout this time, uh, you know, while in these gaps between albums. Uh, but for Big Express, um, let's, let's play a track before we talk more about it. This one is the penultimate track from the album. This is I Remember the Sun. chose that one because it's probably actually the only one I really like on this album. <laughs> this is where I'm in your camp now, and I think this is a just a plain not good album. Yeah, I'm going to say the same thing except uh, go one track up, You're the Wish You Are I Had, uh, is the one that I was okay with, and the rest of it is is just okay. Although the titles are fantastic. There was a band... <laughs> Was it a Japanese band that named itself Ski- uh, Seagull Screaming Kisser Kisser after mm-hmm. uh, the title of a song on this album? And that is a fantastic name for a song or a band or just anything. Like you can open a restaurant and name it Seagull Screaming Kisser Kisser and it's going to be a huge hit. <laughs> yeah, though, though I did uh, probably actively roll my eyes the first time I heard Train Running Low on Soul Coal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I will agree with you and also say that that was probably also one of my favorite songs on the album, which says more <laughs> about the rest of the album. Yeah, I think right from the beginning, I think it's it's a little too weird, you know. I think they, I like when they experiment in general, but in this one, it feels like they just missed every time, you know. Maybe, yeah. I think they're they're kind of goofy, but in more of a grading way on this one. I, I don't think it was really fun to listen to. It also sounds the most dated, I think. I think the production on this one is the most, like, dated sounding to me. Possibly, yeah. I could I could go along with that. The author called it a, a marked improvement over its predecessor, but I couldn't disagree more. <laughs> I think this one... Well, the I think, author I think is wrong. Well, the, I mean, the author probably said it was a marked improvement over everything that came before! Exclamation point! <laughs> yeah, say, he didn't so much call it that as exclaimed that it was. <laughs> Uh, it did ultimately sell worse than Mummer, so I was not alone in my sen- sentiments. But um, oh, and, and then the uh, the world over, I thought was very police sounding for a band that just did, did one of their last shows with the police. Right. But um, I mean, this is kind of a thing with XTC too. I mean, you can you can hear the influences of other bands, and they are not only very conscious of that as they're writing and recording, but actively embracing it and going all in on it. Like, I heard this song by this particular artist, and I was just kind of riffing on it with the guitar, and I came up with this other thing which sounds pretty similar, and I want to go further with it, and that's the origin of this song. And over here, it's like, I kind of want a Beach Boys vibe. Let's do this. Uh, 
there's a this is a very influenced band and they're mm-hmm. they're very much about embracing their influences and i think that's cool yeah they do they they wear all their influences on their sleeve for sure and are yeah. not afraid to uh try on different hats you know so to speak musically uh but they would also like we were talking about before you know they'd have to pick up odd jobs to make end meets now and uh so Andy, uh, as serving as a producer, f- uh, along with a guy named John Leckie, they took a job uh, producing a singer uh, named Mary Margaret O'Hara, who, if you couldn't tell from her name, was a devout Catholic. And upon finding that Andy and John were not, she abandoned her sessions, citing creative differences. But uh, that left them then with this booked studio that they had planned around for two months uh, with nothing to show for it. So... Andy calls up Colin and Dave to mess around in the studio under the guise of a different band, and they record as the Dukes of Stratosphere, which was a name that they had actually toyed around with before landing on XTC. But they decide to just kind of play around and make these throwback 60s psychedelic songs. Uh, They all put on pseudonyms for themselves. Andy became Sir John Johns. Colin became the Red Curtain. Dave was Lord Cornelius Plum. And Dave brought in his brother and named him E-I-E-I Owen. So nice. They're off to a great start just from that. But then they put down uh, six songs, released a little mini album called 25 O'Clock under the name Dukes of Stratosphere. Uh, and Virgin actually agreed to publicize it as a lost album from a 60s psychedelic act and put it out on April Fool's of 1985. But uh, it ended up... <laughs> within a month selling more than Big Express had sold all year without anybody even knowing that it was an XTC album. So that that sort of sparked their creativity a little bit in that oh, we can we actually can just play whatever and if we're having fun, that shows through. Yeah. Have you listened to that? I have not listened to any of... I did a couple of albums under other names and I haven't listened to them. Have you? I did go and listen through. They have a um, compilation of all of the Dukes of Stratosphere songs. And they really do, like, if, if I believe that nobody knew it was them because it sounds like early Pink Floyd. Like, it, they did a great yeah, job yeah. capturing that 60s psychedelic sound. And they it actually is pretty good. I certainly like it better than Big Express. But, All right. Yeah, we don't. I don't have any of it to play because I just listened to some tracks online just so I could right, get a reference. Right. But, but yeah, I, it's probably, I probably will end up picking up the compilation because it's pretty fun. Uh, but this kind of drives their creativity again. They record a bunch of demos throughout 85, 86. And so Virgin uh, pairs them up with Todd Rundgren as their producer for their next album, who the band admired. And Rundgren had liked the band, having seen him uh, back when they toured the States. Uh, but even, you know, ever since they became a studio band, Partridge was kind of becoming more and more controlling in the studio. He was kind of always on top of the producer to the point where the other guys were like, why are we even hiring this guy if you're going to just argue with him the entire time? And that that did not stop with uh, Todd Rundgren, unfortunately. But uh, Rundgren actually ha- knew what he was talking about most of the time. So they did, he was able to win more arguments than some of the other producers. Uh, but this was uh, this would result in the aforementioned Skylarking, which is possibly the high point of their career. Uh, I'll play the the kind of surprising breakthrough single that wasn't even on the album to begin with. Uh, This is a little bit of Dear God.
so yeah, Dear God was initially the B-side to Grass, which was the official first single. Uh, but uh, radio stations, especially in the U.S., started just playing both sides, and people caught on to Dear God, and it uh, got so popular that the second pressings of Skylarking, they removed Mermaid Smiled and replaced it with Dear God just so it was on the record. Yeah, which I think is an improvement. Mermaid Smiled is good. I love this album. I think it's fantastic. The the A-side, B-side of Grass and Dear God, I think, is the right choice because Grass 2 is a great song. That's one of my yeah. favorite songs just of the entire XTC oeuvre. But, yeah, Dear God is fantastic and, and definitely should have been on the album in the first place. And this is one of the songs where... And I, I think the, it, it gets compared to Rocky Raccoon, and I think that was, again, a conscious influence on the part of... Uh, the band that they were going to try to make the song a little bit like that particular song, not just the Beatles influence, but Rocky Raccoon. But this is one where you can also hear in this song what's going to come later, not just from XTC, but from rock music in general and British rock music in particular. I listen to this song and I hear Radiohead. I don't yeah. know about you. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, Radiohead's definitely one of those bands where their early sound I can tra- I feel like you can trace back to XTC. But, yeah. Uh, this and this album in general, I love just the entire song cycle of it. Rundgren's idea was to make it sort of like the it begins at sunrise and ends at sundown, and I yep. think that's I think that's pretty effective. I love the the one two of Summer's Cauldron to Grass right at the top, with uh, the two songs fading into each other. Yeah. yeah. And the meeting place is another great song as well. Like that's also that's also a single too off of this one, right? And uh, grass mm-hmm. and meeting place are both Colin Moulding songs, and he doesn't write as much in a lot yeah. of his uh, output. Like he's not the songwriter for the band in the way that Partridge is, but he's got those two songs back to back, like right at the top of the album, mm-hmm. and they're great. Yeah, there's a there's a record number of Moulding tracks on here. There's five, uh, which are grass, meeting place, big day. Dying and Sacrificial Bonfire. So, yeah, Sacrificial when Bonfire just gets, is another good one. Yeah, it's the perfect closer, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this one's terrific. And I think um, the it's certainly a rebound after Big Express, which I, which is completely dismissible to me. But uh, I, I think uh, what's funny is they did actually eventually release a version with both Mermaid Smiled and Dear God when they remastered it which they are glad, fortunate to remaster because apparently the first print of this, there was like a issue with the polarity, which uh, as a, I don't, I'm not a musical engineer. I don't know exactly what that refers to, but the sound was thinner than it should have been. Something between the mastering and the printing, something got switched and it was a much thinner sound. So then they went back and listened to it and like, oh, this sounds way better. So they re-released it with every track on it. And as the album was intended to be heard, it also was remastered with, um, or re-released, I should say, with an idea that Andy had had for the initial cover of the album, which instead of the little painting uh, or drawing of like the little nymph type characters, there's a, a woman's bush on the front and a man's bush on the back with little flowers in it, <laughs> which you probably was right to not do initially, but and then <laughs> the, the book refers it as to like the the famed Fanny and Dick cover or something like that, but... They did it for the 2001 re-release, put that cover on there for it, which is pretty funny. Yeah. Very t- it's it's tasteful, you know. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Artistic. As opposed to those, like, moralistic days of the 80s when they just couldn't do that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Uh, but this, uh, oh, I, I want to also digress quickly. The Dear God song, uh, the child's voice you hear at the top and at the end, uh, was a 10-year-old hired by Rundgren, who was a daughter of a friend uh, named Jasmine Vallette. And I tried to look her up to see what she had done or has or is up to since. Uh, what I could find so far was that there's a Jasmine Vallette that appears on a website for a Woodstock, New York-based vocal group, and Woodstock is where they recorded this album. She claims on the site, Rundgren has a list of collaborators, so I'm like, okay, on the right track. Says they did jingle work for WCZX in Poughkeepsie. And then there's also an article from the Poughkeepsie Journal in February of 2019 that lists a Jasmine Vallette among people arrested for welfare fraud. So... Jasmine, are you okay? Is what I'm asking. If does God, anybody out there Ian know? Ian Reed strikes again. <laughs> yeah, I trace it directly to him. It's his fault. I, somebody needs to tell me if Jasmine's all right. I'm worried. I hope she is. Hopefully, now that uh, you know they're out from under the Ian Reed Virgin nightmare umbrella, mm. maybe you can get some royalties thrown your way. I'm not sure. Uh, I will say, listening to Dear God, it starts with the child's voice, and my first thought was, oh, no, because every <laughs> time a band decides to go with a child's voice or a choir of children, it's never, ever a good idea, and I'm including you can't always get what you want in this. I don't like the child's choir in that song either, <laughs> oh. uh, and that's about as good as it gets with children's voices in rock music. Um this was great. This was really good. Yeah, it is a like, good song. It's it's not my good, favorite on the album. Good choice using a child's voice. I would would never have guessed that. I think it is the right move for that song. I think it's yeah. It, it makes it all the more evocative. I think. Yes. Uh, but after this one, they the uh, would they would reconvene the Dukes for one more album uh, in '87 called Psionic Sunspot before before uh, retiring them for good, uh, and then they would also release eventually a CD compilation that, that that's what i was listening to that had both cyanic sunspot and 25 o'clock on it mm-hmm. uh, but that would be the end of the dukes of stratosphere for a while they got that out of their system uh and then but still it kind of took some of what they had learned from that into uh their next one which is their second double album uh released in february of 89 uh oranges and lemons uh they brought in drummer by the name of pat mustelato for the drummer on this one uh, and let's take a look, take a quick listen to the opening track. Uh, this is Garden of Earthly Delights. that one's another opening track that perfectly sets the tone for the rest of the album i think it's just yes. like a 
they're just having fun again at this point. And piling and piling layers on top of layers with this yeah. with this particular song, especially like it's the rest of the album is not going to hit the height of that opening track in terms of just how complicated a track it is. But yeah, I think you're right. That's that sets the tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this one is uh, it's certainly not, you know, as complex or, you know, deep introspective that like some of their other work is. But I think this one is just, they finally, you know, after 10 years of playing around in the studio at this point, like, have sort of found that they can play around in successful ways and try on the different hats like we mentioned before. But this time, I think it all kind of worked for me on this one. I thought they were all pretty fun while also being lighthearted, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the They also, I feel like you can sort of peek into the 90s sound that they were kind of influencing at this point also like yeah uh mayor of simpleton i feel like is somebody at the bare naked ladies heard that song and said hey guys i found our entire sound yes yes and then uh, i also uh, oh go ahead oh no i was i was gonna go back to what you had said about english settlement as the the other double album uh mm-hmm. you had said that's that's an album that should have been one instead of two and i feel that way about this album here like there's a lot of really great stuff on it if they had maybe condensed it down uh cut the number of tracks in half and just gone with the eight or nine best songs uh, and left the other six or seven off. But again, we're we're aping the the Beatles' career, so let's start to wrap up our uh, our output with a double album that's really good, has a lot of great stuff on it. Arguably, the best thing we're going to put out, but maybe a little overstuffed. I'm like, yeah. if the Beatles do that exact same thing, we're going to do it too. I think that for me, the lows on this one are not as low as uh, the English settlement. So I think I I, I didn't feel myself like trying to skip to the end of this album like i did with that one sometimes but yeah. uh it is definitely it is almost their white album in that like let's th- just kind of make a bunch of silly songs uh one of which like <laughs> pink thing is just definitely a song about andy's penis yeah i got i i I did not make it through that song i got about (laughs) 45 seconds in and i was like nope i'm just gonna skip ahead yeah i don't listen to that one every time certainly but you know i'm glad (laughs) i made it on there but but also i think this one is just kind of fun i think this one's very lighthearted, and i love garden of earthly delights uh and i think that uh there's a couple other ones on here too that I, you know, I found myself humming, which is always kind of my test. You know, is it stuck on? My yeah, do you head? have a favorite off of this album? Is it Garden of Earthly Delights or is it, yeah. or is it a different one? It's yeah. definitely Garden. Yeah, I could listen to this album five times and probably have five different favorites coming out of it. Garden of Earthly Delights is good. Mayor of Simpleton is good. Uh, Scarecrow People is the one that I've got it fixed right now as my favorite song, but that <laughs> could change. Merely a Man is really good. That opens side mm-hmm. three. Uh, Poor Skeleton Steps Out is a good song, uh, also from side two. Like, all five of those are solid songs among their best, and I'm not sure which one of those five stands out the most. Yeah, and I think this is, like, an example of a lot of those are, like, quirky songs that are actually fun to listen to still, unlike some of, like, The Big Express, which was quirky and also not fun to listen to. Yes, yeah, 100%. So, and they did, at this point... I mean, that's one of the things I love about Garden of Earthly Delights is like it has enough great melodies for three songs, but it's all one song. Yes. 
uh, it is it's super overstuffed, but for some reason it all manages to work. But anyway, after that one, they would uh, this one performed well, uh, especially in the U.S. as they had grown. You know, they continued to gain steam in the U.S., especially after uh, Skylarking, and now this one. Uh, so as a result, they were convinced by their new manager they'd finally settled everything with Reed. He was out uh, for good. Uh, but their new manager managed to convince them to do just kind of a low-key pseudo-tour of America playing acoustic gigs uh, for radio stations and TV programs. It would end up being around 30 gigs, including a Letterman appearance and an MTV appearance, which was actually kind of partially responsible for launching the Unplugged series. They played MTV in June of 89 and Unplugged launched in November. So this was they were kind of like a test program for MTV Unplugged, which was cool. Nice. Uh, they would release one more album with Virgin, uh, None Such, in 1992, before they would officially have to just go on strike with Virgin to renegotiate their contract to actually get any royalties from their music. Uh, they were making so little off of their albums, they basically had no choice but to just stop recording entirely after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did manage to eventually negotiate their rights to their music, released two more albums in 99 and 2000 on the label Cooking Vinyl, before Andy started his Ape House label in 2001, where all XTC re-releases would uh, end up coming from. And he, he jokes that uh, with Napster taking off at that point, it was the perfect time to start a record label. So, uh, But he as he and the band finally, at that point, could begin profiting fully off of their albums. And he would also sign a couple of, uh, some other smaller bands to the label and always agreed to a 50-50 split of any profits with the band so they would get paid too. Nice. Uh, so now that brings us uh, to our top song choices. So let's, uh, Aaron, why don't you go ahead and run down what your top five favorite XTC songs were? Uh, not surprisingly, most of them are going to be off Skylarking, but uh, my number five is I had to have one from Oranges and Lemons. And again, I went back and forth on which one, but my number five right now is Scarecrow People. Okay. Mayor of Simpleton, just outside uh, at number six. It's it's one or the other, but Scarecrow people right now. Top four I'm fixed on. Number four is The Meeting Place off of Skylarking. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three is Grass off of Skylarking. Number two, go all the way back to Black Sea, Generals and Majors. That's my number two. Uh, and then my number one uh, is, as as an American, I'm going to go with the one that uh, VH1 identified as the, the one-hit wonder song, uh, which is Dear God. Oh, wow. Okay. Mine, I went, I had like a top 10 that I was kind of rolling around for a while trying to narrow down. And I ultimately decided to make the list uh, one, basically one from each album except for Big Express that were my favorites from those. So okay. uh, I start at five uh, with All of a Sudden It's Too Late from English Settlement. I like that song a lot. That one got stuck mm-hmm. in my head, and I think it's a it's a great, great, lyrically and musically, I like that one a lot. Uh, four, I go with Wonderland from Bummer, which mm-hmm. we heard earlier. Uh, three, uh, from Skylarking, I went with Earn Enough for Us, 
that one's that might be actually my favorite. That's on a that good record. song. Yeah, yeah. similar in that it's a, a worried about money song just like uh, farm boys wages but i think this one it's such like a perfect catchy beatles-esque song that i that every time it came on i it, it brightened my day well it's also a testament to how strong an album skylarking is that you said earn enough for us and i'm like oh yeah that one too that was another great one like that's mm-hmm. a that's just a solid album start to finish yeah and then uh for number two i have respectable street the first song from black sea I, I love that song. It's basically, th- this is kind of where their influences of stuff I liked already, because this is basically a blur song, I feel like. Like, there's mm-hmm. no park life without Respectable Street. And it just goes to show, like, it, it's, there were nosy neighbors before Next Door. You know what I mean? <laughs> they have, they have, they're not a new thing. song cracks me up and i think it has a great guitar part also uh so then number one from oranges and lemons garden of earthly delights favorite yeah. cc song <laughs> it's just too I can good see that. every time it comes on i just like i feel like i have to start dancing garden of earthly delights is tech is definitely top 10 for me it's and it maybe top five if i listen to oranges and lemons again five or ten more times that might emerge as my favorite from that one mm-hmm. so now this i probably know the answer to this one already but what is your top xtc album if you had to pick one uh that would be skylarking andy oh interesting okay (laughs) that one that is my choice as well i had actually black sea is a very close second though i like that one a lot i i went back and forth and almost had that one as my favorite but i think skylarking is too good yeah black sea for me is a very distant fourth (laughs) for me it was like skylarking and black sea were the definite top two Big Express was the definite six, and then agreed. The ones in the middle could change depending on what day you ask. I feel like all the other ones I like a lot, but fluctuate in my in the standings. Yeah, I think Skylarking is definitely my number one. Close to number one would be the non-existent mythical Oranges and Lemons album. That's just 
uh, a single album instead of a double album. I think mm -hmm. uh, just a very compact eight or nine songs from that would rival Skylarking, but it's a double album, so Skylarking's number one. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, for for having they went into Skylarking with a lot of out or with a lot of songs too, but I think it's another just credit to Rungren that he said no, this is what the tracklist should be. So I think yeah. for all the butting heads that there were, he clearly made the right decisions. Well, almost. They left Dear God off. Yeah, that's true, because <laughs> they did leave, make one wrong decision. They made the that most quickly, obvious yeah. wrong decision and did everything else right. <laughs> I guess that's a fair point. Well, the, the version of Skylarking that exists today, that's the, that's the correct That's version. the album, yes. That one right there. Well, next time we will stick around this end of the alphabet and listen to six albums from the L.A. punk band X. But uh, before that, I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank XTC for the great tunes. Thank you to Chris Toomey for writing the definitive biography. And thank you to Aaron for joining me. Thank you. So without further ado, we will see you next time. Do not forget, it is never too late to discover great music that's new to you. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Andy Here's the 80s. If you haven't done so already, please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on whatever podcast service you use. Show notes for this episode, along with my suggested track list for single LP versions of Oranges and Lemons and English Settlement, can be found at acton.wordpress.com. That's acton.wordpress.com. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or feedback, send me an email at andyhearsthe80s at gmail.com. That's 80s spelled out, E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S at gmail.com. Or hit me up on Twitter at andyhearsit. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.